0: James says this concerning Job, Behold, we count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. We want to look again tonight at this book of Job, and we will be in chapter 9. The last time that we examined this book of Job, we looked at Job's three friends. Uh, At least they wanted to be friends, or thought they were friends, and he thought they were, until they began being very critical of him. And we saw that they really failed to be of any help to him And in fact, they made things worse for him. And so he called them worthless physicians and sorry comforters. We pointed out some of the ways that they dealt with him so that we would not deal in the same way with hurting people that we might come in contact with. Tonight we want to look at chapter 9, which is Job's response to his friend Bildad, Uh, what uh, this man had to say. Basically, um, he said that uh, God does not pervert justice. I think maybe before I go into that, though, and I've probably said this before, but it bears repeating, because we know the beginning of this book the first couple chapters and because we know the way the book ends um we know that job's basic position was right and his friend's basic position was wrong but we got to keep in mind that that doesn't mean that everything job said is right or that everything his friend said was wrong uh there's a mixture in both uh, what Job says and what his friends say. Many of their statements were right and some of what, have, what Job said is wrong. Uh, actually, and, and don't take me wrong here, but much, much of what's written for us here in the book of Job is human speculation. It was divinely recorded for us in the scriptures but nevertheless it's a it's a divine record of human speculation and so just because something's said doesn't necessarily make it right uh, from either job or his friends so it's good to remember that as we read through this especially this poetic portion the main body of the book of job <clears throat> um Let's pray here before we go on. Father, help us now as we seek to learn from your word and the account that we have of the interaction between Job and these friends. We confess our need for your help, for your forgiveness, and for your work in all of our hearts. Be with us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, the main thing that Bildad said in chapter 8 was that God does not pervert justice. And that, of course, is true. That's uh, something that uh, we recognize as Christians. But the way it was applied by Bildad and some of these other Friends uh, was off track because they assumed Job's miseries must be because of God's just punishment for sins in his life. Um, so, as we begin to read this chapter 9, we see that Job basically agrees with what Bildad says. He says, in truth, I know that this is so, what you've said. But he disagrees with the application that's being made. Uh, What he maintains is that he's done right, that Job has done right, and yet he's suffering great pains and grief and humiliation from God. And one of the arguments that he makes is that he also sees other people who seem to be suffering way out of proportion to their sin, and he also sees wicked people that are prospering. So to his friends, he's saying, this assumption you're making concerning the uh, relationship between personal sin and personal uh, suffering just doesn't fit reality and it certainly doesn't fit my case job says so we'll read through this chapter Uh, but first i thought what i'd do is try to give a brief explanation of what i think is being presented so when we read through it it might kind of help you to analyze what's being said so this This is just a a brief overview of some of the main points and, and particularly the main emphasis of what we're going to read here in a minute. Basically, Job says, I'd like to bring my case before God. That's what he's saying in this section. I'd like to bring this case, my case, before God himself. But I can't because God's God. And I'm... A man. I can't dispute with God. I'd like to, but I can't. He's all powerful and all knowing, and He does things beyond our understanding. Besides that, He's invisible, so I don't know when He's here and when He isn't. So Job says, even if I have a good case, I can't go before God, and especially I can't do that in my present, beat-down, terrified position that I'm in, the position that He's got me in. I certainly can't go before Him. Even though I'm right, I'll be accounted as wrong since I'm complaining against the Almighty God and challenging His ways of dealing with me. Again, he's God. I'm just a man. What I need is a referee. What I need is an umpire. What I need is an arbitrator. One who can stand in a judicial capacity between God and I and decide the case. But there's none like that. Someone on my level as a man but also on God's level. And no mere human judge can do that. So Job says, there is no umpire. There is no arbiter between God and I. He goes on to say, I'd still like to bring my case before him if I could, but I can't, without fear anyway and especially in the present condition that I'm in. If he'd just take his hand off of me for a little while, maybe I could say something. Well, that's kind of an overview of the emphasis of chapter 9, so what I want to do now is read chapter 9, and we'll stop occasionally and make a few comments uh, concerning this chapter. Then Job answered, In truth, I know that this is so, that God doesn't pervert justice. But how can a man be right before God? If one wishes to dispute with him, he could not not answer him once in a thousand times. Wise in heart and mighty in strength, who has defied him without harm? It is God who removes mountains, and they know not how. When he overturns them in his anger, he shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble. He commands the sun not to shine. He sets a seal upon the stars who alone stretches out the heavens and tramples down the waves of the sea. Who makes the bear Orion and the Pleiades and the chambers of the south. Who does great things unfathomable and wondrous works without number. Were he to pass by me, I would not see him. Were he to move past me, I would not perceive him. Were he to snatch away, who could restrain him? Who can say to him, what art thou doing? In other words, God's in charge, God's in control. How am I going to bring my case before such a one? He will not turn back his anger. Beneath him crouch the helpers of Rahab. Now, we'll we'll talk about Rahab. This is not Rahab the harlot. This is a a kind of a folk tale that was incorporated well-known at that time, related to a sea monster who represented the forces of evil, and even those were under God. So Job says, if, if that's the case, how am I going to speak up? Will not God turn back his anger beneath him, crouched the helpers of Rahab? How then can I answer him and choose my words before him? For though I were right, I could not answer. I would have to implore the mercy of my judge. If I called and he answered me, how I could not believe that he was listening to my voice. For he bruises me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause, he says. Considering what's going on in my life, I can't believe he'll ever even listen to me at all. He will not allow me to get my breath, he saturates me with bitterness if it's a matter of power behold he is the strong one if it is a matter of justice who can summon him how are you gonna how are you gonna argue with the one who gave you the ability to argue i mean he's in charge if it's a matter of justice who can summon him though i am righteous my mouth will condemn me though i am guiltless he will declare me guilty now these are Not right things that Job's saying here. He's saying, though I'm guiltless, he's going to declare me guilty. I am guiltless. I do not take notice of myself. I despise my life. It is all one. In other words, it doesn't matter what I do, apparently. Therefore, I say, he destroys the guiltless and the wicked. It doesn't matter if I'm wicked or guiltless. This is what happens. He destroys the guiltless and the wicked. If the scourge kills suddenly, he mocks the despair of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. If it's not he, then who is it? He says, if these things are happening, if I see the innocent suffering, and I'm suffering as an innocent person, if he's not doing it, who is doing it? Now my days are swifter than a runner. They flee away. They see no good. They slip by like reed boats, like an eagle that swoops on its prey. Though I say, I will forget my complaint, I will leave off my sad countenance and be cheerful. I'm afraid of all my pains. He says, it's not going to do me any good to pretend, because here I am in pain, and I, I know God's doing this, and I'm suffering because of what God's doing. I know that thou wilt not acquit me. I am accounted wicked. Why then should I toil in vain? If I should wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, yet thou wouldst plunge me into the pit, and my own clothes would abhor me. It says it doesn't do me any good to try to make myself right and be righteous. Verse 32. For he is not a man as I am, that I may answer him, that we may go to court together. There is no umpire between us who may lay his hand upon both of us. Let him remove his rod from me, and let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak and and not fear him, but I am not like that in myself. In other words, if he would just let up and take away these great trials and this terror that I'm experiencing, maybe I could say something. But I can't do it on, on my own. Well, that's a incredible chapter. And legal terminology and legal metaphors we uh, we see in there is the idea of God taking God to court almost uh, almost like bringing a lawsuit uh, and those type of things are found throughout the book of Job uh, I, I plan to look at them tonight but uh, this got too long so we'll just take this one and maybe in the future we can look at some of the others but the, the clearest place is right here towards the end in uh, Job 9:32 and 33 at least the clearest in what we read tonight Job says he needs an arbiter Or the King James Version says a daysman, which uh, is an interesting term. In other places, uh, Job seems to go ahead and just try to take his case before God himself. Uh, But in his clearer, more enlightened moments, he knows he can't really do that. And he believes that God himself will yet vindicate him. Here, though, in this section, he's not in that position in this section. He recognizes his need for an arbiter, an umpire, uh, a referee, or, as the King James says, a daysman. Now, that's an interesting term. It, wasn't, it was already an, kind of an old-fashioned term when the King James translators used it, but they used it because it expressed very well what was being asked for here. And and the word umpire just doesn't seem to quite cut it. Uh, That that word daysman comes from a Latin word, which means to fix a day for hearing a case or a cause. To fix a day for hearing a case or a cause. And a daysman was the one empowered by mutual consent to decide a cause and enforce a sentence. Now, I want to read you just a little quote here from the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. It says, It was the Eastern custom for a judge to lay his hands upon the heads of the two parties in disagreement, thus emphasizing his adjudicatory capacity and his desire to render an unbiased verdict. Job might consider a human judge as capable of acting as an umpire upon his claims, but the problem is is that there is no man worthy to lay his hand upon God. I mean you can find somebody capable of handling your side of it, but who's going to deal with God? who can lay his hand upon you and God? You see that phrase there, who may lay his hand upon us both? So what we have here in the midst of job's complaining and and uh, desire to bring his case before God, we have a very, I think, profound utterance by Job, 2,000 years before the coming of Christ. Why is this profound? Because he has a desire for someone who could lay his hand upon both man and God, one who could identify with us in our low condition, and yet be qualified to lay his hand upon God as well, and to take our human case before God on his level. That's a profound thing to think about, and Job was thinking about that thousands of years before Christ was here on earth. It's an amazing insight into man's need from long, long ago. But Job saw no possible answer to this need. The answer lay in one who was both God and man. A mediator, and there's just one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. But more than a mediator, he wasn't just talking about uh, someone to mediate. He was acknowledging the need for a God-appointed adjudicator or judge who could represent God to man and man to God. Now the Apostle Paul says this in the book of Acts, chapter 17. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, which is what Job was in, having overlooked the time of ignorance, God is now declaring to all men, to all people everywhere, that they should repent. Because He has fixed today There's the day being fixed in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man who he has appointed having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. God, you see, has provided this man, this one who can lay his hand on both God and man. Jesus himself says it this way. For just as the father has life in himself, even so he gave to the son to have life in himself And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. So in the incarnation of the son of God, we have what Job longed for. One who could lay his hand on both God and man and bring us to God. But Job was ignorant of that because it hadn't happened. It was somewhere around 2,000 years yet in the future. So Job, in his affliction and sorrow and confusion, often tried throughout the accounts here that were given in the book of Job, often tried to establish his own righteousness before God. And in doing that, he sometimes questioned God's righteousness, and he would even demand that God would give an account of his actions. Not just asking why, but saying, you have to tell me why you do what you do. What are you doing, and why are you doing it? That's why, in the end of the book, God calls Job a fault fault finder. And that's why he needed to repent, though God himself had previously said of him, there was no one like him on the earth. A blameless and upright man fearing God and turning away from evil. So I think really one of the most amazing things that God is doing in this whole series of events that's recorded for us here in the book of Job is that he was was making the holiest man on earth at that time more holy. That's the reason he allowed Satan to do what he did. He was making the holiest man on earth more holy. Suffering was used for Job's ultimate good to help him see areas in his life that needed to be dealt with. See, his confidence in his own righteousness became at times an overconfidence in himself and a self-righteousness before God but God was using Satan's evil intent to show Job his need and actually use it for Job's own good. Using Satan's evil intent for Job's good. As you read through the book of Job and you see it in this chapter, you see that in the midst of his terrible affliction and sorrow, Job vacillates between faith and fear, between hope and hopelessness, between reverence for God and fault-finding with God. But what he never does is turn from God. He never denies God. He never curses God, as Satan said that he would if God took away all his blessings. And in the end... Job is a better man for all that he went through. He eventually learned to trust God even in the midst of mystery because God never explained this whole event to Job. He never explained why to Job. So I think that surely must be one of the major applications for us from this book because we all to greater or lesser degrees will have times when we can't see why God is doing what he's doing in our lives or maybe in the lives of loved ones. There may be and probably will be inexplicable pain and emotional turmoil that comes into our lives. Times when we feel overwhelmed. Job was overwhelmed. I think that's one of the best words to describe his condition. He was overwhelmed with what had happened to him. And there'll be times that we may feel something like that. In those times, we can identify with some of the emotions that Job felt and probably some of the things that Job said. But in those times... Our real help will not come from looking at Job, but from looking to Jesus. Here in the life of Christ, we see the ultimate man of sorrow. And sometimes when you're, when you're reading through Job, there'll be sections when you just think, I think that could be the words of Christ in the midst of his sorrow. You'll see sections like that. But Christ was the ultimate man of sorrows. And your darkness is never as deep as his darkness there in the garden or on the cross. If we want to talk about being overwhelmed, he was overwhelmed. We don't usually think of that, but I think it's right to think that way. Christ was overwhelmed with what he had to go through there in the Garden of Gethsemane, we're told Jesus began to be grieved and distressed. And then he said to those disciples with him, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death, much more than even Job's was. My soul, Jesus says, is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And then the account of the uh, same event in Luke says this, Being in agony, he, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. He was overwhelmed. And I'd say this also. Of all the whys that have ever been asked in this world, the greatest and deepest was Christ on the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Nobody ever asked a why that deep, that hurting, as Christ asked there on the cross. Distress and pain and sorrow and suffering and darkness, he knows those things more than anyone. He knows those things more than everyone. But he made it through, and he triumphed over sin and Satan and sorrow and distress and darkness and death. God put his son through such terrible suffering not to make him better. He didn't need to be made better, but to make us better. And that's the only way it could have been done because he was the only one who could lay his hand on both God and man because he was both God and man. This arbiter, this daysman that Job longed for and didn't have any hope of finding. This one has been sent. And he's here today for anyone who wants to be right with God. Here is one who can bring you to God and bring God to you. We are in such a privileged position compared to what Job was in because of what we know from the Gospels and the New Testament. Now, the testimony of the book of Job is just what we read to begin with. We've seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. But that compassion and that mercy ultimately only come to a person because of what Christ has done. God's compassion and mercy to Job way back then was all based on what we know now of what God has done in Christ. That doesn't mean that there will never be any mystery, any places where we'll not ask why. But ultimately we know that the answer has to do with what God has done for us in Christ. The Lord willing, we'll take up the, um, account there next time. I'm not really planning to go chapter by chapter because we'd be here a long time, but I felt like chapter nine was such a important chapter that we could spend, uh, this one time on it. Uh, We'll try to take bigger chunks in the future.